C.S. Lewis said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Without the Son of God, Jesus Christ, we cannot see reality. Without Jesus, we cannot understand ourselves. Without Jesus, we cannot understand others. Without Jesus, we cannot understand this world. Without Jesus, we cannot understand the Bible. And without Jesus, we cannot understand our purpose in life. In other words, without the true light, we are blind. And that's the take-home message. Without the true light, we are blind. But the good news is that God has given us a true light in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the good news we're talking about this morning. And we are going to start in verses 6-8, through and we're just going to simply call this the witness. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. John came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now this John, this is not John the author of the gospel, okay? The apostle John wrote the gospel. John, he also wrote 1st through 3rd John and also Revelation. But here we're talking about John the Baptist. Okay, John the Baptist is a very important figure in the story of Jesus. And so I want to stop here and talk about John the Baptist, the witness, the one who came to bear witness about the light. And what we can say about John the Baptist is that he was clearly sent from God. Perhaps you already know his story, but uh, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. And he had two special, amazing, devout parents named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest, and Elizabeth, his wife, was barren. And they were both advanced in years. It sounds kind of like the story of Abraham and Sarah, doesn't it? They were both advanced in years, but God gave them a miracle baby, and he said to name the baby John. And so from the get-go, John was a very, very special little baby. And God had a specific purpose for John the Baptist's life. In fact, John the Baptist's ministry inaugurated the New Testament. His ministry ended uh, the period between the Old and New Testament known as the 400 silent years. And so uh, he has a pretty good spiritual resume. And what was John the Baptist's purpose? He was a forerunner. In the ancient world, kings had what we call forerunners. Okay, so before a king would go to a different country, they would send their forerunner, and the forerunner would go and say, prepare for our king to visit. And that's what John the Baptist was for Jesus. He came to earth to prepare earth for its king, King Jesus. And he was a great man. In Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus said that among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Another thing we could say about him is that he was a truth teller. Maybe you've heard those fire and brimstone preachers, right? That was John the Baptist. He was an old-time prophet, similar to Elijah. And he was a radical guy. Have you ever met people who love Jesus and they're just so radically different than the world? Not just in what they say, but in how they dress, how they act. But you know they love Jesus? That was John the Baptist. John the Baptist performed his ministry 
in the wilderness. John the Baptist never touched alcohol. He wore camel's hair, which would probably be pretty nice today. He wore his camel hair, and he ate locusts and wild honey, and he did not mince words. He was not a respecter of persons. He was not afraid about other people's opinions about him. No, he, he called people to repentance. And he said, prepare your hearts for Jesus. You know, we need more truth tellers today, don't we? We need more people today, more Christians today, who are radically different than the world and are willing to tell the truth even when it means being rejected. Because John the Baptist, like Jesus, was rejected, right? He wasn't accepted by the religious establishment. But he was a great man. What made John the Baptist great wasn't just that he was a truth teller, it's that he was humble. Because if we're truth tellers but we're not humble, it's going to be really hard to get through to people. But John the Baptist was humble. In fact, uh, there's this scene in the Gospel of John where his followers come to him and his followers say, listen, everybody's leaving your ministry and going to Jesus. And certain people might respond differently to that, but the way that John the Baptist responded is what he said in John 3.30. He said, Jesus, He must increase. I must decrease. And may that be our hearts individually. May that be our church's heart to be humble like John the Baptist. The final thing we'd say about him is that he was not the light. And you might say, Billy, I know that John the Baptist was not the light, but if you were living at that time, it would be harder to understand that because this was a great man with a powerful ministry. I mean, think of the most powerful or famous religious figures in our day. John the Baptist was more than that. Everybody was going out to him. He was clearly spirit-filled. He was speaking the words of God. And so the apostle John knew that he had to clarify, hey, this is not the Christ. And John the Baptist said that he was not the Christ. In fact, in abode to his humility, he said that he was not worthy to untie the sandals of the Christ. So he was a humble man, but he was not the light, and he was sent to point us to the light, which is who we're going to talk about now. So look at verse 9 with me as we talk about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And there's two terms I want to focus on in verse 9. Light and world. You'll hear Pastor Craig and I mention the Greek sometimes, and I try not to do that too much, but sometimes it is helpful. Uh, the, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, and so sometimes when you look at those words in the Greek, it can give you a fuller understanding of what they mean. And the word light, uh, it occurs 72 times in the New Testament. 23 of those times, about a third, are in the Gospel of John. John loves this word light. He often contrasts it with darkness and he ties Jesus to light. And Pastor Craig told us last week what this word means, that it means wisdom and understanding and truth and knowledge and spiritual purity. And Jesus fully embodies those things. And this great light, it says He was coming into the world. And that's the second word I want to focus on, world. That word occurs 186 times in the New Testament. 78 of those times are in the Gospel of John. And then John uses that term world 24 more times in 1st through 3rd John and three times in Revelation. And the point simply is, when you see the term world used in the New Testament, it's usually John. And here's what he often means when he says it. 
He means the world opposed to God. The world in opposition to God. The world under the reign of Satan and his oppressive ideologies and humanity that's hostile to God. And here is what he is saying. He's saying this light Jesus was coming into enemy territory. He was coming into a world that is hostile to God. You know, one of my personal hobbies I love is to read history and to watch history. And I probably um, annoy my wife sometimes just like going on history monologues, but I love it, you know. And uh, one thing I learned in looking at World War II was at D-Day, we had this um, American Airborne Division. And it was a really fascinating division of our military. I mean, these guys on D-Day got in planes, flew over enemy territory, behind enemy lines, and parachuted in. And of course, not all of them made it, but some made it, and they took over enemy territory. And that's actually a good way to think about Jesus. Jesus was like one of those paratroopers who flew into enemy territory. When he was born of the Virgin Mary, he came into a hostile world, a world that was being controlled in many ways by Satan's sin and death, and he came on a rescue mission to save us. This is one of the great ways to understand the gospel. I mean, think about Jesus' life. From the moment the word went out that he was going to be born, what happened? Herod opposed him. Herod tried to put all the children two years and under to death to stop Jesus. And then as he was growing up, uh, an angel would appear to his father Joseph and tell him to move here and there to escape the enemy. Then before he began his ministry, what, what happened? Satan tempted him in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He tried to stop him. During his three years of ministry, many people were opposed to him. Right? Rome was opposed to him. The religious leaders were opposed to him. Because he was in enemy territory. And then at the cross, right when Satan thought he had Jesus cornered, Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. Jesus is the one who came into enemy territory behind enemy lines and defeated our enemy, Satan, sin, and death on the cross. That's the gospel. You know, in our lives, we are going to be in slavery and bondage to the enemy until we turn to Jesus. There's nobody else who can rescue us from being in slavery and bondage to Satan, sin, and death other than Jesus. But the good news of the cross is that when you turn to the cross, you turn to victory in Christ. When you turn to Jesus, you are no longer enslaved to the enemy. As we do every week here, we want to point you toward Jesus. It's very simple. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved from our enemy. And we'll have true freedom and victory in Christ. He is the light that came into the world. He is the one who in Matthew 28 said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the one who in Revelation 1 said, I have the keys of death in Hades. I'm the captain now, right? That's what Jesus said. He defeated our enemy. And we have a choice. Are we going to turn to him or reject him? We actually see two choices given here in these verses. And the first one we're going to talk about is this. We'll call it rejectors of the light. Rejectors of the light. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. 
It says, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. As I was studying these verses uh, this week, I thought, these are two of the saddest verses in the Bible, aren't they? That the world that He created rejected Him. And that His own people that He raised up rejected Him. You see, when Jesus um, was crucified by the Romans, that symbolized the world's rejection of God. And when the religious authorities and the Jews put Jesus on the cross, that symbolized Israel's rejection of God. In short, Jesus was rejected. Sometimes in our own lives, we think, how can Jesus possibly understand what I'm going through? But when it comes to rejection, He can understand. He can understand. Another thing I've learned in my short time of being a pastor is that nothing ties people up in knots and causes the amount of pain that rejection does. Of all the things that people would come to their pastors in the church about, rejection from loved ones, from spouses, in relationships, in the church, in families, rejection is hard for us to bear, isn't it? You know, Jesus was rejected worse than anybody. I wrote down some of the things that they said to Jesus during his life, they said, you have a demon. They said to him, this man is not from God. They said, he is a blasphemer. They said, you were born of sexual immorality. So they didn't just take shots at him, they took shots at his mom. His own family said, he is out of his mind. His brothers were not believing in him during his life. And then we could say that the cross was the ultimate rejection of Jesus. And so if you've ever been rejected, if you're feeling rejected this morning because of something in your life, I want to ask us all the question, how did Jesus respond to rejection? How did he respond? The first thing he did was he asked God why. You know, we can be made to feel guilty about asking God why when we're being rejected, when we're facing hard things. But Jesus, who is perfect and sinless, I just want to remind all of us, he Ask God why. Don't you remember on the cross what he said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's okay to ask God why. And there's a place and a time for that. I'll say in my own life that um, nothing's actually taken me deeper in my relationship with the Lord than the times that I've felt rejection. And nothing has taken me deeper in my prayer life than the times that I've felt rejection. Here's why I think God allows it for us. Because we can put our trust too much in people and in things. And so God will allow these things to happen to us so that we remember that there's only one that said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. People will let us down, we will let people down. But it says about Jesus in the Gospel of John that while they were entrusting themselves to Him, He was not entrusting Himself to them because He knew what was in man's heart. Listen, you can love people, and there is a place for trusting people, but people will let you down. It is only Jesus who will never abandon us. Remember the words of David in the Psalms? He said, even when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. It's okay to ask God why. The second thing Jesus did is he remembered 
His what? By His what? I mean His purpose. He remembered what He was here for. In the Gospel of Luke, it says in the middle of that Gospel, that when His time had come to be taken up, He set His face toward Jerusalem. That phrase, set his face, it's this Jewish expression for a firm, unwavering resolve to accomplish a task. And the point is simply this. While Jesus was being rejected by everyone around him, while he was being misunderstood by everyone around him, and all these people had competing agendas for him, and there was chaos and distractions, what did he do? He set his face toward his purpose. He knew that he had come to go to Jerusalem and die on the cross. For our sins. And if you're like me, here's what we want to do sometimes when we're rejected. We want to sulk. We want to get bitter. We want to throw a pity party. We want to replay the matter over and over and over again in our heads. I want to remind all of us that's not what Jesus did. What Jesus did is he said, What am I here for? He focused on his mission and he completed the task. And that's what he calls us to do too when we're feeling rejected. The final thing we could say about Jesus is he focused on who? Here's something Jesus understood about his life. Not everybody he came across was supposed to be in his life forever. Did you know that God will sometimes only bring people into your life for a season? Jesus was constantly praying when it came to who was going to be important in his life and ministry. Don't you remember he spent a whole night praying before he chose his disciples? Or when he was praying and his disciples came to him and they said, everybody is seeking you, what did Jesus say? He said, we need to go to another town because this is why I was called to preach to more people. So many of the people that should have listened to Jesus, such as the religious authorities, they didn't listen to him. But he didn't let that rejection get to him. Why? Because he knew he was someone who came to seek and save the lost. Those who knew they were sick. Those who knew they were not righteous. Jesus focused on them. And when it comes to our lives, there's going to be people you love that never turn to Jesus. That's just the truth. That's the sad reality. And we can pray for them. We can share the gospel with them. But God wants us to go to him and ask the question, who are you calling me to today? Because people will reject us. It's part of being a Christian. I share these things with you because I don't want us to be disillusioned when we're rejected. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He said, all who belong to me will be persecuted. I believe it's Paul who said that. And so let me sum up all of this talk with a quote by a guy named A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer was a theologian, and I believe he hit the nail on the head when he put it this way. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Here's what we can say about Jesus. Jesus was hurt more deeply than any person who ever lived. And here's what else we can say about Jesus. Jesus was used more greatly than any person who has ever lived. Here's what we can say about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was hurt deeply. He was rejected by people. He was thrown in prison and he was beheaded by Herod. 
but we're still talking about him today. 2,000 years later, he was used greatly by God. And think of those people in your life that are the most spiritually mature, that have had the greatest impact on you. Here's what I can promise you. They've been wounded. They've experienced spiritual wounds. They've experienced rejection and pain and hurt. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you will too. It comes with the territory. Don't let that get you discouraged. Stay on mission. Let's talk about the second choice that we're offered. And this one's more encouraging. We're going to call this receivers of the light. It says in verses 12 and 13, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here is a great short definition of what it means to follow Jesus. To believe in His name. And we're going to see this word believe over and over again throughout John. And here's what the word believe means. It means to trust. It literally means to trustfully commit oneself to something. So when it says believe in Jesus' name, what it means is to trustfully commit yourself to the name of Jesus. On a day like this, uh, let me give you this illustration. If you were pulling up to a bridge and you got out of your car and you stared at the bridge and you said, I believe in that bridge. I trust that that bridge can hold me up and keep me safe and keep my family safe. But you never got in your car and drove over the bridge. Did you really believe in that bridge? Or take this chair. If I walked up to this chair and I said, I believe this chair can hold me up. I trust that it can uh, keep me safe. And I never sat in the chair. Do I believe in that chair? No. No, I don't. Because I'm not putting my full weight on the chair. That's what it means to believe in Jesus, to put your full weight on Him. Yet so many of us say, I believe in Jesus and we never put our full weight on Jesus. And if we're not doing that, do we really believe in Jesus? I know sanctification is a lifelong process. There's things that He's got to drive out of our lives, but listen, to believe in Jesus is to trustfully commit yourself to Him with all your heart, all of your weight. That's what it means when John says to believe in Him. And for those who do believe in Jesus, it says that they have the right to become children of God who are born not by human parents or by human desire or by a husband or wife's decision, but instead by God. Not by our will, but by God's will. You see, just as it can be discouraging when certain people that you might think would come to Jesus never do, it can be equally encouraging, such a blessing, to see how God uses unlikely candidates and unlikely churches like Prairie Bible Church to spread His message. God is in the business of doing more with less than anyone. God can do anything with our lives. And He often uses people that you would never expect Him to use. And that's why it says it's not about a person's decision or our will. Whose will is it? It's God's will. His decision. When we turn to Jesus, He can decide to use you, me, in a powerful way. 
I was thinking this, this week about someone who's had a deep impact on my life. That's my great-grandpa. My great-grandpa's name was Martin. Martin DeHaan. And he went by M.R. DeHaan. And, uh, you know, his story is a story of not by our will, but by God's will. Martin grew up, uh, his parents were devout Christians, and they had this dream in their heart that one of their three sons would become a pastor. And he was the youngest, his oldest brother's name was John, he had a middle brother named Ralph, and then there was little Martin. And, And the guy who was going to be the pastor was John. I mean, what a fitting name for this message, right? He, he was going to be the pastor, and, and his parents, their hearts even lifted one day when John, as a young boy, came to them and said, hey, maybe after college I could become a minister too. And so they continued to pray and dream that maybe John would be that son for them. When John was 15, uh, one day after school, he went out with a friend uh, out to a pond to swim, and they were going out to collect and catch lilies, and, and they went out there, but John never came home, and his friend never came home. And when they went to the pond, they found those two on the bottom of the pond. They both drowned. And as you can imagine, those parents were crushed for the rest of their lives. Not just because their dream had been crushed, but because they lost a son. And the two little boys, Ralph and Martin, they didn't show much promise about becoming pastors. They too were crushed. You know, little Martin grew up and he became a doctor, a medical doctor. And he was a good student uh, and he begun his, his doctor practice in Michigan. And at that time, you would ride horses and buggies to all your patients in weather like this and treat your patients. But he became a workaholic, and in order to self-medicate and get through the long nights, he became an alcoholic. And as he approached 30 years old, uh, he ended up in the hospital with a near-death experience because of the abuse he put on his body. He actually had a day as he started to get better where one of his patients knew that he loved whiskey. And so the patient brought him a bottle of whiskey as a gift uh, for getting better. And he had a choice to make. Was he going to go back to who he'd always been? Or was he going to truly turn to God because God had been working on his heart in that hospital? He took the bottle of whiskey and he dumped it down the drain. And he never drank again. And he became a pastor. And it was through the ministry of M.R. Dahan that tens of thousands of people came to know Jesus. And if we go back and you were to ask those parents when he was little what their will was, what their decision was, and what God was going to do in their family, they would have no idea. But God had a different plan for that young boy's life. And I just want to remind all of you, I don't care about your past. God can do anything with you when you fully yield your life to Him. And that's what he's looking for. People who will fully yield their lives to him. As the band comes up, uh, the first step is to trustfully commit yourself to believe in Jesus. That means to confess that he is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. And if you will do that, if you will put your faith in the finished work of Christ, you will become a new creation and he can do anything with your life.